One morning, one of those patrols near the OP reports the sound of armored vehicles. And suddenly, through the fog, the dismounted patrol sees 17 T-62 tanks. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. In this second episode with Don Snedeker, we talk to him about his time after his tour of Vietnam when he served in West Germany. From 1974 to 1986, Don served in a number of roles, but most noticeably he was assigned to the 11th Armoured Cavalry Regiment in Fulda, one of the locations where it was assumed that the Warsaw Pact units would attack through. He also trained as a foreign area officer specialising in Western Europe and studied at the German Armed Forces Staff College in Hamburg. From 1991 to 1992, Don headed the Inspectors and Escorts branch, conducting conventional arms control inspections and confidence-building visits to the former Soviet Union and other Warsaw Pact countries. If you can spare it, I'm asking listeners to contribute at least three US dollars per month to help keep us on the air. Larger amounts are always welcome. Plus, you get a sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a monthly financial supporter, and you bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. Co-host James conducts our chat, and I'm delighted to welcome back Don Snedeker to our Cold War Conversation. So, but, so you swap the the heat and the humidity of vietnam for the cold wetness of northern germany uh, <laughs> you turn in december 74 must have been a big old change for you uh, to arrive at op alpha um on the full gap a, a huge but i was i was so thrilled to finally be allowed to wear the black horse patch on my uniform that it could have been Mars, and I would have been okay with it. It was personal. It was my dad was no longer alive, but it was something, it was a goal in my life, and I was finally going to see it come true. And, yes, there was a time on – the backside of range 80 at Grafenvir in November, I think it was where it was minus 40 degrees wind chill. And I will tell you that I have never been so cold in my life as when I was there that day and that night, but in hindsight, it could have been minus 60 and I would have been okay. Could you help us understand what is OP Alpha? Where is the Fulda Gap? And why is it so important? Well, let's start with the Fulda Gap. The Fulda Gap is an area uh, in 
eastern part of uh, the current German state of Hesse and the western part of um, oh, I'm, uh, my German friends are going to hate me that I've forgotten this, but it, it's in the Thuringerwald, the forest area and the the mountains that in that area form a natural geographical gap that was used by foot armies and horse armies in European history, some going from west to east and some going from east to west. And so when you do a geographical analysis of where the communist hordes might come, Obviously, the North German Plains are one. And in the area around Fulda, the Fulda Gap was another because it was a direct shot at the heart of the German economy, as well as the closest, the the shortest distance to the French border. And so it was an area that war planners said, the bad guys are going to come here. We need to have a good defensive force. And so the role of the armored cavalry regiments, at one time there were three on the east-west German border. By the time I got there, there were only two. The role of those regiments in peacetime, was to maintain 24-7, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, observation of the border to make sure the bad guys, the communist hordes, weren't coming across, to give early warning to the main battle forces that were stationed further back in Germany, the armored divisions, the infantry divisions, so that they could deploy and set up a defense. So in peacetime, 24-7, we're watching the border. In wartime, the regiments had the mission of delaying the attacking Soviet and Warsaw Pact forces and then handing the battle off to the armored divisions and infantry divisions that were along the main battle area and pass lines. So you were conducting a delay and you were trading space for time and lives for time. We understood that with the overwhelming numerical superiority that the Soviets and Warsaw Pact had, especially in artillery and tanks, that our life expectancy in a border regiment, should the balloon go up, was between 15 seconds and 15 minutes. We all knew that. Our families knew that. We were willing to live with it. And it was just something that it was. So as part of the observance the observation and surveillance mission that the regiments had, we established a number of observation posts, permanent camps, platoon-sized camps that were 
immediately adjacent to the border in areas where we thought the bad guys weren't going to come. And the first squadron's place was Observation Post Alpha, OP Alpha. And we had a platoon there all the time, 24-7. And that platoon was responsible for conducting ground patrols, dismounted and mounted ground patrols along the border in the first squadron sector, day and night, at different times. We had a tower at the observation post, and there was ground surveillance radar, and later uh, all sorts of electronic listening and viewing devices where we could look across the border and see if anybody was coming, if things were different, if there was a break in the routine. So we routinely reported from the OP, we see three border troops, BTs, walking the border trace along the inner fence at this time. And you made a spot report. And the guys in the border operations would then compile those reports and start comparing them and saying, okay, every day about this time, these three BTs go for a walk from their own tower or their own barracks. And sometimes they go south, sometimes they go north, but it's about this time every day. And they do it six times a day. And then all of a sudden, there aren't any of those patrols on the east side of the border. And you say, why? What's different? Why is it different? Is something going on? And you report that up the chain, up to the 7th Army USER headquarters, and they send out the Mohawks, and they call for the satellites, and that's when things kick into gear, and that provides the early warning. So that was our daily job, and a troop would have that mission for a month, and each platoon would spend about a week at the OP, and they lived there day and night for seven days or longer, and then came back and were replaced by another platoon. And that rotated then through the squadron every day of the year. A very different role to the one that you had in Vietnam, but equally as intense, but I'd have thought in quite a different way. Absolutely. But, I mean, the missions were not that different. Our missions in in both cases were reconnaissance, find the enemy. And so in Vietnam, it was go in search of them. And at the OP, it was watch and find them. I mean, we had a situation occur when I was the intelligence officer for the first squadron where we had a report over the course of a week of it sounds like there's armored vehicles moving just behind those hills behind the town of Giza. And then somebody saw a convoy of military vehicles going from the Tan Pocket north towards Giza. Hadn't seen that since the Czech Prague Spring of 68. What's going on? 
So we raised our own internal word a little bit, put more patrols out, and damned if one morning one of those patrols near the OP, foggy morning, typical winter foggy morning, the OP reports the patrol, the dismounted patrol north of the OP has the sound of armored vehicles. And they're getting louder. And they're getting louder. And suddenly, through the fog, the dismounted patrol sees 17 T-62 tanks. And no one from higher up, none of the satellites, none of the Mohawk aircraft, none of the intel assets from up above had said anything about what was going on. And suddenly, there's 17 Soviet tanks on the border. And you can imagine the pucker factor went up dramatically within the regiment. And then the dismounted scout reported, there's three guys on the ground and they have a map. And each of the guys is pointing in a different direction. They were lost. There was a Soviet training area at the other end of that road. And they had taken a left when they should have taken a right and ended up on the border instead of at the training area. And pretty soon they all jumped back on their tanks, turned them around and went the right way. But there it was. All of a sudden, there's the 17 Soviet tanks on the border. It could have all turned out so very differently. Oh, yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'll admit that my minor claim to fame is that I visited OP Alpha in 1986, 87. I can't quite remember. And uh, was very impressed with the fact that they had, I think it was a, uh, a Bradley with the engine running, ready to go. Um, uh, we walked down the inner German border. And I think my claim to fame is I ran around the post just to prove that I'd been to East Germany. Um, and then I think it was the lunch that we were served. There was a, a, a light or a heavy option for lunch. And my God, I don't know how anybody could eat that much food. And for a, a, a bloke coming out of 1980s UK to have ice cream being delivered out of a dispenser was like heaven on earth. So I thought, oh, I must come back to this place. <laughs> but when you're 18 and you're, you're uh, doing uh, physical training every morning and then you're working for 12, 14 hours and then you're drinking beer at night, you, you burn a lot of calories. I'd imagine so. And, and talking about drinking a lot of beer at night, what was life like in Germany when you're uh, in the border legion up against the frontier of freedom? Presumably you might have a sort of slightly devil-may-care attitude when it comes to your, uh, your social life too. Oh, yes, sir. <laughs> Absolutely right. And uh, I will tell you that the border communities, the towns that hosted our troopers, our regiment, they were good friends. They were fully cognizant of why we were there. And they didn't like it when we ran over their newly planted beet field. And they complained about that. 
And they didn't like it when the tanks woke them up and that because there was an alert at three o'clock in the morning. But when it came down to it, they supported us dramatically well. It was really nice. And having served elsewhere in Germany, it wasn't anything like that in Stuttgart or Frankfurt or Baumholder or Hanau or Erlangen or any of the other places that weren't so close to the border. The people who lived in those towns understood. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. If we weren't there, they'd be speaking Russian. And it made a huge difference in how we felt. We were part of the local community. We always participated in the local foshing events, the Carnival, Mardi Gras kind of events. Christmas time, I mean... They were part of our social lives, and we were part of theirs. And it was a huge, huge emotional support, morale support for our troopers, many of whom had never been outside of their hometown, let alone their state or the United States. And I will tell you that because I spoke German, I had a huge advantage But even those who didn't speak much German felt at home for the most part. And that's why we were willing, that's one of the reasons why we were willing to to take the risk of a life expectancy of 15 seconds to 15 minutes. And when you weren't at OP-Alpha and you weren't doing your rotation into that, observation post, what would you be doing and where would you be based? I was there in the late 70s, 74 to 78. And we had the best of all worlds. We had money to train with. We had the ability to train pretty much anywhere on any ground between Fulda and the one kilometer zone of the border. Anytime. And it was the best trained unit I've ever been in. When I was a troop commander, I had three armored cavalry platoons, and I had one of them out in the field for three days every week, and they would rotate. And then when we were on the border, of course, we didn't do that. But the platoon leader could take his platoon out into the terrain that we were going to fight on and get to know that terrain 
and to try things, to maneuver. Oh, that didn't work. Let's try it this way next time. It was a huge advantage for us. And then, of course, twice a year, we had gunnery training where we did tank gunnery, machine gunnery, uh, mortars, all of the weapons that we had. And you had the major exercisers, uh, reforger, and so on and so forth. And so we spent most of our time training and in the field somewhere, either at Grafenveer or at Hohenfels or Wildflicken or in the local training area or at the border. I would say that 70% of our time was away from garrison training for our wartime mission. And uh, you're in this role, as you said, for four years. Where did you go on to after that? When I left Fulda, I uh, studied for a secondary specialty, which in the U.S. Army is called a foreign area officer, uh, sometimes called a political military officer. And I went to language school for French I went to the foreign area officer uh, course, which was uh, six months at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And then I went to the training and doctrine command uh, at Fort Monroe, Virginia. And I worked there as a staff officer conducting the U.S. German Army staff talks. And that's where we, where Starry was the, uh, General Otis was the commander there, and then Don Starry. And that's where we developed the uh, airland battle concept, worked it with the Germans. So it became a bilateral and then a multilateral doctrine. NATO eventually uh, took over much of that as well. We tried to find areas where we could make our equipment compatible so that their fuel trucks could refuel our tanks and vice versa. And then after that, for three years, I was selected to be a student at the German Armed Forces Staff College, the Führungsakademie in Hamburg, and um, did that for two years. And then I went to the 2nd Brigade, 3rd Armored Division in Gelnhausen, first as the Brigade S3 operations and training, and then later as the executive officer. That lasted through 86. And then I was reassigned to the Pentagon as the German desk officer in the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And all this time you're facing east towards the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact uh, threat. In 1989, that must change. Uh, what happens at that point in terms of the U.S. military's response? Well, I will tell you that at that point, I was in the joint staff. Uh, I had just given up the desk as the German desk officer, and I had become the um, the speechwriter for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at that time, Admiral William Crow, And someone came in and told me into my office and told me that 
the Berlin Wall was coming down. And I will tell you that for all my training and all my personal experience in Germany in my lifetime, I never would have guessed that that was going to happen. I just couldn't imagine that without a shot being fired in anger. I mean, there were plenty of shots fired over the course of the multiple decades, but without a war, that the Warsaw Pact would crumble, the Berlin and uh, the Iron Curtain would come down. It just was inconceivable to me, but wow. (laughs) I mean, it was fulfilling at the other end of the spectrum because I had worked all my life for that goal, and here it was happening before my eyes. But that change in role must have been very acute for you between 91 and 92 when you head the inspectors and escort branch Um, because there you're escorting uh, the adversary into places that you would have not let them in (laughs) a few months earlier. Let let me speak just briefly about the the, – the job I had in between the Pentagon and the on-site inspection agency. For a year, I was exchange officer and instructor at the German Army Tactics Center and Officer School in Hanover. And that was the year of German unification. And two things are noteworthy about that. The first is that one of my classmates from the uh, German Armed Forces Staff College, Klaus Feldmann, was uh, Leo tank battalion commander just 40 minutes away from where I was living in Hanover. And he and I spent a lot of time together talking about his role as a battalion commander in the German army. And then all of a sudden there was this East German unit that was their partner. And they came over to visit his battalion to see how the Bundeswehr did things because very shortly they were going to become part of the Bundeswehr. And in walks this American lieutenant colonel speaking German to the battalion commander and his staff. I'd been up there a bunch of times the battalion commander and I are on the familiar term do instead of see in the German language. And they were just flabbergasted because, you know, they figured that it was kind of like the Soviet minder in their unit. And it wasn't like that at all. And the second piece is that at the tactic center, they had the mission of going over into the East, Drüben, as I used to say, and to talk with the units there and find out how the East German units there, find out how they did their tactics and what was adaptable and so on and so forth. And I asked to go along with these three Bundeswehr officers, and for whatever reason, they agreed. And so the four of us went and visited virtually every East German army division over the course of that year. 
and I saw war plans. I talked over beer with guys who had been my enemy for years. And it changed my perspective. I certainly never lost sight of the fact that they would have killed me if they had had the opportunity to do so, and I them. And I never lost sight of the fact that we weren't really comrades in the German sense of the word, not the communist sense of the word. But we had similar life experiences. And I talked to an East German air defense colonel. And he said to me, I was born in Berlin prior to the start of World War II. And in World War II, I joined the Hitler Jugend. And I learned all about how life should be. And in 1945, the communists came in and told me everything that I had learned up to that point in my life was wrong. And we're now going to tell you the truth. And so for all of my adult life, according to this colonel, all of my adult life, I have been part of the FDJ and part of the Communist Party and the NVA, the East German Army. And now I'm 50-something years old, and someone comes into my office and tells me, every for the second time in my life, everything you've learned in your life up to this point was wrong, and we're going to tell you the truth. And he said that he and his wife had the opportunity to get in their Trabant and drive over the border in into Western Germany and wouldn't do it. They couldn't bring themselves to do it because they didn't want to know that everything they had been taught was a lie. And that made me think about how it would have been had the shoe been on the other foot. It didn't change my commitment to my country or my patriotism, but it did give me a different perspective on life. And I brought that with me when I was at the on-site inspection agency doing conventional and nuclear arms control inspections and escorting other teams from the former Soviet Union and Warsaw Pact to our sites. And I think it made a difference because I did have a little bit different perspective. I was able to step back and put what I was doing in a different, in a larger context. I still don't like the Russians, but I get it. So what did your role entail as head of the inspectors and escorts branch? A team, we had eight teams. Uh, Each team had uh, a major and a captain and then six non-commissioned officers. And the non-commissioned officers had... Medical training, 
They had vehicle identification training. They had language training. At least two of them were fluent in Russian. At least one, if not both of the officers on the team, fluent in Russian. And our role, for example, I'll give you an example of an inspection. It, it wasn't a uh, conventional forces in Europe inspection. It was a Vienna document uh, confidence and security building measure visit to Kuibyshev on the Volga River in what was then Russia, but former Soviet Union. And we went in, and according to the convention, we were allowed to open any door that was big enough to get a military vehicle through. So we couldn't open the latrine door. We couldn't open the door of their offices, but every warehouse door, every motor pool door, and they knew that, and so they had most of those doors open for us. And our job was to go in to count, to make sure that what their report was, in fact, what the reality was. So if they said there's a regiment here at Kuibyshev, and it has 426 tanks of this variety and 300 armored personnel carriers of this variety and so on and so forth. It was our job to go in and say, is that right? Or are they hiding something? And naturally, we had guys who had artillery backgrounds, had armor backgrounds, had infantry backgrounds, had engineer backgrounds. And we could tell just by looking what kind of condition is the equipment in. So we were doing sort of as a secondary mission, we were doing how prepared for war are they? Could they, from a standing start, go to war? Now, this was an arms control inspection, and so there were a lot of, there was a far greater, far, far smaller tensions. It was not the height of the Cold War anymore. It was not the Berlin crises or Prague Spring or the Polish problem. And so that made things a little bit easier, but nonetheless, they were still our adversary. And it was our job to go count, but also to take their temperature to see What was going on? Did they have the ability to fight like the propaganda said they did? And so we reported back to the Vienna uh, Convention, the results of our inspection, and we reported back to the intel guys on the U.S. side, here's what we saw. And they were doing the same thing. When they came to us, we escorted them. So the team that had gone to do an inspection was also the escorts for when one of the Russian teams or Bulgarian teams or Polish teams or whomever came to us 
and wanted to look at Fulda or Rhine-Main Air Base or wherever. And so our job was to inspect and to escort their teams, but also to take a temperature of, are they serious about this arms control stuff? How did you find the Soviet officers that you worked with? Did they share the same opinions as you? They were always, if, if the inspection regime said we were allowed to inspect for this amount of time and look at these things, they stuck to that rule and they didn't make any exceptions. We could ask to look at a door, but they didn't allow us to. And reciprocity was a big deal. If during one of their inspections at our base, our guys were jerks, when we went over there, their guys were jerks. There was a lot of reciprocity involved. If we said, we want to look at the the missile crate that's on the bottom of that stack of 20, they wanted to look at the spare engine that's on the bottom of that stack of 20. A lot of that going on. We weren't there long enough to become buddy-buddy, but I will share with you one experience that was, I think, indicative of the what Tolstoy talks about, the Russian soul. We were at dinner after having completed our first day of inspection in Kuibyshev. And I was the senior member of our delegation, a lieutenant colonel. They had the district commander who was a one-star Soviet or Russian general. And as was always the case, they tried to get us drunk to see what we might do or say. And we sipped instead of emptying the glass each time that we toasted. And everybody had to make a toast. And so I had found out that the general had served in the Soviet cavalry. And so I, in my toast, I said, my father was a horse cavalry. I am a cavalryman. And I raised my glass of vodka and said, to the cavalry. And the Soviet general didn't speak, or Russian general, I keep making that mistake. <laughs> uh, he didn't speak any English, so he had to wait for the translation. But as soon as he heard it, the demeanor on his face changed dramatically. And although it wasn't his turn to make the neck toast, he insisted, and as the senior guy present, who was going to say you can't? And he stood up, and I don't speak Russian at all, and so it was being interpreted for me by a good staff sergeant who was on our team. And he said, my grandfather 
was a Cossack. My father was a Cossack. And he pounded his chest and said, I am a Cossack to the cavalry. <laughs> well, what a fantastic place. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what do you say after you that? You just drink, I think. <laughs> Clearly, the, the, the mood changed around the table because, you know, the general was happy, so that means everybody else can be happy. And there's the the one guy from the GRU who's never happy, but, you know, whatever. Um, but I just – that was one of many experiences. I will tell you that every inspection and every escort was stressful because you had so many people – looking over your shoulder, either on the ground where we got guest inspectors and guest escorts from unnamed lettered alphabet soup organizations or from Washington or from wherever. And you didn't want to screw this up. You didn't want to do something that they could then claim, ah, you prevented us from doing this or you didn't tell the truth or whatever. You just didn't want to screw things up. And so that was a very stressful time. Fortunately, all of the, it it was a joint team. And so we had Army, Air Force, and Marines on the team in the organization And every one of them was a competent professional. Very, very good. They cross-trained. The equipment specialists learned some of the language. The language guys learned some of the vehicles. It It was a rewarding last assignment for me in the Army. You told me that you walked through the Brandenburg Gate twice. (laughs) Ah, yes. Well, I've done it a couple of times since, but the first time I walked through the Brandenburg Gate was in the summer of 1961. My father was uh, in the 3rd Armored Division in Hanau, Germany, and I was a member of the Boy Scouts, and we did a Boy Scout camp meeting in Berlin, and so All the Boy Scouts from Hanau got on a duty train. You had to pull the shades down when you were crossing the border and leave them down so that the the commies couldn't say that you're spying on them. And, you know, uh, how old was I? 61. I was not very (laughs) old. (laughs) I was 15. I was 15. And um, it was a big adventure. We're going to Berlin. This is really cool. And while I was in Berlin in the summer of 1961, some of us went across the border. You could still do that into East Berlin. And I walked through the Brandenburg Gate. And as I said, 
I grew up in the military, spent a lot of time in Europe. My family was big on travel and visiting new places. So I had this spirit of adventure to see new places and do new things. And there's a Brandenburg Gate. I knew a little bit about it from history. This is cool. One month later, the wall went up. My father disappeared for a couple of weeks out in the field with his unit. We got our bug out bag, which was really a footlocker with all the things that we would need to live on, to live on for several weeks. And we sat in our apartment, my mother, my brother, and I, waiting to be notified that we were going to be put on a bus and taken to Bremerhaven and put on a ship and take back to the United States because we're going to war. Everybody thought that it was going to happen. And then it kind of cooled off and so on and so forth. So I go back to Germany in the 70s and 80s, and I can't go to Berlin because of my security clearances and the things that I'm doing. I couldn't go to Berlin. And then the year of German unification, I was, as I said, at the German Officers Academy. And my buddy, uh, he and I, the, the German tank battalion commander in Sella, he and his wife and I celebrated the night of German unification together in Sella in a wine stube down in the basement, drinking wine with a bunch of Germans our age, all similar experiences, and it was just a marvelous thing. And the next day, he took his officers across the border, and I got in my car, my civilian car, in civilian clothes, and I drove across the border. And that Soviet training area where the tanks had come from that ended up on the border, I drove right past it. And the guard that was standing there, still a Soviet soldier, he looked at me and I had a convertible, a T-top, and he looked at me just flabbergasted. <laughs> this was an apparition from another planet. And then about three or four months later, I went with one of the classes from the Officers Academy on a trip to Berlin for four days. I'd gotten to know some of these students as well as their uh, instructor, and they invited me to go with them. And while I was there, I walked back through the Brandenburg Gate because the wall was down, Berlin was unified, and I could. And if I could, I thought I should. And I thought, never in my wildest dreams did I believe that I would be doing this under these circumstances. I had imagined that I might walk through the Brandenburg Gate with, you know, driving a tank or in a tank, or I might be marched through the Brandenburg Gate with my hands in the air with a Soviet soldier poking me with a bayonet. Those two scenarios came to mind. And yet here I was, 1961, 1990, and I'm walking back through the Brandenburg Gate, never in my wildest dreams. Could I have 
imagined that I would do that in my lifetime. And yet I did. Well, that is a, a fascinating story and an amazing set of experiences throughout the Cold War. Thank you very much indeed, Don. You're very welcome. And we have further photos, videos and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters, help keep us on the air, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Thanks again to all our financial supporters of the podcast, but a special thanks to our Politburo level Patreons, who are Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, and Jeffrey Jones, who are supporting us at 30 US dollars per month. Thank you. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, You'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.